before we uh, read Scripture and pray, just a couple of things. This weekend is uh, Memorial Day weekend, and for those that don't know, this is a this is a celebration, a remembrance, really, just like we will be remembering the ultimate sacrifice uh, a little bit later on in our service. This is a remembrance started after the Civil War of those who made the supreme sacrifice of their lives, fighting for our country. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I can preach freely that we can serve uh, with the freedoms that we have. Our, perf- our country is not perfect, but we are so grateful that uh, there are those who have given, again, the supreme sacrifice, and so we do want to remember those today. I'll, j- just so you'll know, and many of you do, Veterans Day, it's been said, is for those uh, remembering those who are still in uniform, uh, or Armed Forces Day, Veterans Day is for those who have hung up their uniform, but Memorial Day is for those who never made it out of their uniform. And uh, so that's a good way to remember that. And speaking of, we have a brand newly commissioned second lieutenant who came home Thursday, I believe. It was it Thursday you received your commission, Joshua? Joshua Cole is right over here, second lieutenant. Joshua Cole, he's in uniform today, and uh, so we uh, thank God for him. He'll be leaving for leaving for three months of JAG training, and it will not be as difficult as basic, but it'll be longer, so uh, uh, just be in prayer for him. And then I, I think of another veteran, uh, George Gilbert just passed away this last Wednesday, uh, one of our few remaining World War II Veterans, not many around these days, and so uh, remember that family. Then one more thing, church meeting this next Sunday, what we'll do is meet together, we will have our service, dismiss, and then the members will come back for a brief uh, called church meeting to discuss a couple of things very important to us. Let me read uh, the passage of Scripture out of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, we jump to a new chapter some more very practical applications today, and uh, we begin this long section, family relationships in the church. Today, just two verses, and I don't believe we're going to make it all the way through the thoughts that I've been uh, writing out this week, so don't be surprised if we come back this next week and finish up uh, by talking about this uh, important subject of uh, loving and encouraging each other, confronting each other, really, for the good of the church and the good of the individual. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And then it goes on, same thing, do not rebuke a younger man, but encourage him as you would a brother. Do not rebuke older women, I'm filling in for what Paul is saying, Uh, but approach them and encourage them as you would mothers, and then younger women as sisters in all purity. Father, I'm grateful for uh, being able to assemble freely and worship without restraint A lot of that is due to those who have given a supreme sacrifice of their lives. And so we not only celebrate this weekend and we would say to each other, Happy Memorial Day, but with a sense of sobriety, we remember those who have helped us to get to the place where we are right now. And thank you, Father, that we can study your word, we can learn from it. Thank you that doctrine is intensely practical. Thank you that we get now to a point of application, a very, very important part of what it means to be gospeled people who live out the implications of the gospel in our daily lives here in the church and in our families. And so we thank you for that and pray that you would help us now as we study through this, help us to apply it in Jesus' name, amen. 
This letter, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, if you remember, and maybe this is your first time with us, we're walking through 1 Timothy, we'll finish and go through 2 Timothy, and then Titus, if the Lord doesn't come back before that. But they were all written by the Apostle Paul to young pastors, this one particularly to Timothy, who was shepherding a challenging church during difficult times. Now, just to put a perspective on it, and I know that I listen to the news just like you do, and there is a a, a lot of fear that seems to go on. Remember that at the time of the writing of this letter, the destruction of Jerusalem was only about three or four years away. Puts a little bit different twist on when we say during difficult or challenging times. And so, let me just say this in an overview. The flow of the letter is this. Timothy, I want you to lay down sound doctrine. I want you to lay down the truth of the Word of God. And there's only truth and then there is non-truth or lies. And so, he would say things like this out of chapter 4. Put these things before the brothers, command and teach these things. The obvious question is, what things? Everything in this letter. He not only would say, lay it down before the the brothers, but he would encourage Timothy even personally. And this becomes personal, not just for a guy that was pastoring a church, But this is for all of us, and we've just gone through this passage of Scripture in chapter 4. Nourish yourself. Be aware of what you're feeding yourself spiritually. Constantly there is input going into your mind and into your heart. So make sure that when you're being fed, make sure you're getting good nourishment from the Word of God. He said, nourish yourself on good doctrine. That's the only thing to stand on. And then growing out of that, train yourself for godliness. And so that's the whole theme. That's the Christian life. We lay down sound doctrine, and then out of that, we practice godliness. Now, he comes to the end of chapter 4, and he says this. This could be misconstrued. We, we talked about this uh, a week before last, but let me again bring us up to where we are in chapter 5, verse 1. Again, he's saying this to Timothy, but by extension, this is to all of us here today, keep a close watch on yourself, sound doctrine and godliness, and the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, now watch this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Uh Uh-oh, that almost sounds like a works theology, that by teaching he's going to save himself and that by teaching he's going to save those who hear him. But just remember this. We've talked about this so many times. There are three different tenses of salvation. There is the past tense. That's a done deal for those who have repented and believed in Jesus. You have been justified. The blood of Jesus has been applied. You have been forgiven of your sins. The active obedience of Christ is applied to you just as if you'd never sinned. The passive obedience of Christ on the cross applied to you. He's forgiven all of your sins. That's what we celebrate at the end of the service in the Lord's Supper. It's a picture. It's a gospel picture. Both ordinances are gospel pictures of the work of Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised on the third day. And so remember that. So he's not talking about that. Keep on, persist in these things. Watch yourself because you'll bring salvation to yourself and to your hearers. Here's what he's talking about, the ongoing. It's not only justification, but remember, this is what we're all working out, right? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what your age, God has worked salvation in you. He has sealed you. 
You cannot get away from it. You cannot get out of that. Again, it's a one and done. But what he is saying is that by preaching consistently the solid Word of God, good doctrine, and promoting godliness among your people, you're going to ensure that ongoing work of sanctification, the second tense of salvation. And I love what Paul reminds us of in the book of Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, that sets us up a little bit, my beloved, that's a family kind of relationship. Work out your own salvation. Don't, not working for it, work it out with fear and trembling, with a sense of sobriety, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And in light of what he said in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then through the rest of the book, you talk about the practical outworking of salvation. Here, here is basically what he is saying, and we come to today's passage of Scripture. He's saying, Timothy, if you persist in sound doctrine, and if you persist in helping people apply that sound doctrine, as he does in these first two verses and the rest of it, then you're going to save yourself, you're going to save other people, your hearers, in this sense, you're going to save a lot of heartache. You're going to save them from a lot of controversy. You're going to save them from a lot of trouble and a lot of pain. And all of us in this room know that even as born-again believers if we're not living out the implications of that salvation, there can be, and there is, in this room, there's controversy, and there's trouble, and there's pain and stumbling. And so we, we want to be able to be at least lifted out of that, not instantly, but over a course of time. So Paul gives Timothy some of the greatest family exhortation that he could ever give. And this is why I've said over and over to you that doctrine is intensely practical. I hear it all the time and I wince when I hear it. Don't just teach doctrine. Give me something practical. There is nothing more practical than sound doctrine. If you work it out, if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let's look at it. You've got a couple of different things that I've given you on the outline. Let's look at them. Walk right through them before we take the Lord's Supper. Number one, the church should be seen first and foremost as a family. Now, let me say this. As a family should be. I was thinking of this this week. Wow, I, you know, don't, don't rebuke an older man. Encourage him, exhort him as you would a father. And, boy, I've seen some pretty dysfunctional father-son relationships. So let me say this. As the family was intended to be, is spelled out in the words of Scripture. And, and that's one of the striking things that I, that I see all throughout the, the New Testament, but particularly in this book, I see a beautiful picture of family. Let's think of some of the different pictures of the, the church in the Bible. We're called a holy nation, right? A royal priesthood, that's another name. Vine and branches. Now, what do you see in all of these things? They're not mechanical or organizational first. They're organic. Let's just remember that and say it over and over again, that this is, this is a living reality, a living approach. Even even the picture of the church as the temple were made up of living stones. We're a flock, we're a body. And all speak to having something in common. Privilege, capacity, doctrine, calling, need. And the one thing that stands out here is that we are, above all, a family with a common love for one another. Now, I'm setting the ideal I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, looking at this passage. Lord, heritage is not there, but heritage is a long way 
from where it could be. We haven't yet achieved that ideal. I don't know that we'll ever achieve it this side of glory, but that does not mean that we shouldn't strive after what does it mean for us individually, small groups. Why do you think that I promote Sunday school? We've got a fancy name if you're an adult, that ought to attract you. ABF, Adult Bible Fellowship. It's because we want you to be family. And, and, and as try, try as I will, I can't have in-depth conversations with, with, with all of you on Sunday. And, and try as I may, I can't even minister to everybody in all of their needs. But in those smaller groups where you begin to get to know each other and you say to a brother, you look over or to a sister, hey, we need to grab coffee sometime. That, that's what we are seeking to be. Look at how Timothy b- begins this. Well, it's not with that slide, but if you look back, he's going to say this, Timothy, my true child in the faith. There he promotes the picture of a family. In chapter 3, he says the household of God, the church. And so let me say it like this. When you repent and believe, you automatically become part of the family. The church universal. Again, we're not a club. We're not a corporation. We are a local, visible expression of the universal, eternal family of God. Now, just one more word before we go to the next one, and I'm trying to get to this slide. Maybe you had a great example as a family, and there are many of you in this room that did. By the way, I know that there are groups of you that are meeting together and you're seeking to hold one another accountable and you're seeking to help husbands be the kinds of, of heads of their household, the patriarchs in a biblical sense and the wives to be the, the, the appropriate kind of help meet and the children to line up. And, and some of you grew up in that kind of thing and it was a wonderful example, but some of you didn't. And so when you hear me say that that the church ought to be like a family, you're thinking of a very dysfunctional family maybe that you grew up in. But I've learned personally that we learn not only by comparison but also by contrast. And if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, you can look at that and say, you know, Lord, I've looked at your word And I know what my family was like, but I can learn from your word what a father ought to be doing, what a husband ought to be doing, and a wife, and a mom, and kids, and that's what's going to guide me. And you can see your responsibility to do that. We can have a church filled with people who break the curse of coming from a bad family. So, uh, that just saying that is a word of exhortation, let's move on. There are four, it's on your notes, I, I want you to see this. There are four categories of relationships in the church, period. That's not on your notes. Period. The period is not. I added that for emphasis. Now, I believe that this is significant because in our culture, it's not exactly like this, sometimes sometimes in other cultures, but in our culture, in our little slice of history, and I'm talking within the last 20, 30 years or so in our culture, things have shifted dramatically. Okay, would you agree with that? I'm thinking that when Paul told Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16, that if you lay down the truth, you're going to save. You're going to save a lot of controversy. I said this a minute ago. You're going to save a lot of pain simply if we stick to, look at this, these four identifiers. There are only Four identity of people, identities of people in the church. 
Okay? Actually, only two who are at different seasons of life. There are men and there are women. And when they're little, I don't know what the age cutoff would be. There are young men and there are young women and there are older men and there are older women. Period. And I find this incredibly instructive that Paul didn't break the people at Heritage down into all of these little micro subgroups that are trying to find our identity even within the church according to preferences and things like that because there was no need. There were men and there were women. And, and Timothy, oh, by the way, here's how you relate to them. And there were young men and there were old men. Oh, by the way, Timothy, there, there's a, a little bit of a difference, a nuance of how you relate to older men and younger men. Oh, and by the way, Timothy, there's a little bit of a nuance in how you relate to older women and younger women. And Timothy doesn't mention any subgroups. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. But I want to get the wheels turning here. Here's why he didn't talk about them, because there was no need to. Because this is what God created. Let's look back. I've been trying to get to this verse for a little bit here. Okay, finally. In the very beginning of the church, the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. But let's look and see what they were doing. And, and this group, this little group, was impacted by Jesus and his teachings and his examples. All these, this is the 120 people prior to the day of Pentecost, post the ascension of Christ. They were together, together. They were devoting themselves. I guess you could call them devoted ones, okay, to prayer together. Now, he, Luke wants to make sure this is the men and the women, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And they were all together. There were no subgroups except maybe younger and older. Men and women gathered together. Let's fast forward. Day of Pentecost. Here's what we see. Remember this. Stunning what God did. There were men, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men. Now, I believe that that is generic, okay? From every nation under heaven. And Peter preached. Do you remember that? He preached. Those who received his words. So there's a second way of looking at it. Devoted ones who now received his word who were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000. It's interesting, the word that Luke uses here, souls, men and women. We're going to see this in a minute. And all who believed. So there were the devoted ones who believed and received, and they were together, and they had all things in common. Now, let me ask you this. What does that sound like? It sounds like a family to me. Now, I know I've raised kids. I've got grandkids. I can watch them. And I know that that last phrase, they were together and had all things in common, that may be a challenge. Kids, hear me on that. And adults, did your kids ever fight over, squabble over toys? Did they ever say, mine? Our two girls driving down the street or on a, particularly on a trip, it's amazing. Human nature. Now, so you work at, at having all things in common. And so Amy would look out the window, my horse. And Katie would see another, my horse. I mean, they were the farmer's horses out in the field. They weren't theirs, but they were... You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, families fight and squabble and all the rest of that. But a family has things in common. And that, that's the way it's set up. Now watch this. Let's move on. This is after the day of Pentecost. All of those people believed 
And wow, 3,000. Just imagine 120 people. All of a sudden, the upper room got really crowded. Wonder if they got new seats. Now, the full number of those who believed, those who believed, men and women, were of one heart and soul. This is, a, this is what a family should be. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and great grace was upon them all. And then I've jumped forward to the end of the story of when a couple weren't acting like family. They didn't hold all things in common, and God took care of that, Ananias and Sapphira. He doesn't do that today, by the way. I, don't, I haven't seen it, but, and then this is the first time this word is used. All this family talk and great fear came upon what? The church. Trying to make the point that the church is a family, the family of God is the church. And it's made up of men and women, not everyone and anyone who has different preferences. In our denomination years ago, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, there was a really big push on growing the church numerically. And it grew out of several people that were experts in church growth. And so the church growth movement, which was the predecessor to a lot of the other movements, the seeker-friendly and all of the rest of those kinds of things, the church growth movement, our church went through a study, a, a, a leadership study on how to grow our church. And here was the principle. Now listen to this. This is the principle that they used. It was called the homogeneous principle. Okay? And I wrote down the meaning. Straight out of their literature, churches grow best if they focus on outreach and fellowship to those who are most like them. And it created a modern-day caste system. which is not only unbiblical, it is incredibly unhealthy. And, and so we've got seminars that are set up to do this, where our identity is found in our ethnic origin, or skin color, or work, or our hobbies, or even worse, our sexual preferences. When the Word of God says clearly, nope, two categories, men and women, young and old, and our identity is found ultimately in Jesus Christ. So here we have it, church, for in one spirit we were. Now, who, who's the we? Who's the we? Everybody who's attending the church? No. It's the people who were devoting themselves, who received, who believed, who were baptized, and who came into the church, who were acting like family, in one spirit we were all baptized. This is that spirit baptism into one body. Now watch this. Jews and Greeks. We didn't break down. Jews didn't unbecome Jews or Greeks didn't unbecome Greeks, but they didn't demand their identity in the church because they were one. Slaves are free. I, I kind of combined these verses here, male or female. Some have used this to teach that women ought to be preachers. Nothing could be further from a proper exegesis of this scripture. This is talking about our salvation and our relationships in the church. Circumcised, uncircumcised, we were all made to drink from one spirit. Let me show you a picture of a church in which that happened. Now, I'm going to take a little liberty here. But on the second missionary journey, Paul was redirected from Asia Minor to go across to Macedonia. He came to a church, to, excuse me, 
to a city called Philippi in this region. And he went down to the river and he started preaching. And God did some things. Now, it it cost Paul. I mean, he got thrown in prison, beaten, and all the rest of that. But let me show you some of the people that his gospel impacted. There was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a wealthy businesswoman. Okay? Very influential. I didn't put it in here, but the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart to receive what Paul said. And she and her family got baptized and they became the first members of the first church. I was going to say the first Baptist church of Philippi. But hold on, there's more. Now, apply the church growth homogeneous principle to that. Oh, we've got to go after wealthy businesswomen. We'll form the wealthy businesswomen church where we'll all be alike because, after all, the church can grow more rapidly when everybody is like everybody else. But that's not what God had in mind. Second person, it doesn't specifically say it, but I believe if you'll read it closely enough, you'll find because there was a young slave girl, probably from, she was a pagan, absolutely, demon-possessed, and she started following Paul and his crew around. And she heard the gospel, and she even said, these men are servants of of the Most High God. I think she got it. Paul cast the demon out of her. Boom, all of a sudden she was out out of a job. But if she got saved, then she became a member of the First Baptist Church of Philippi. And she sat in the pew or in the chair right by Lydia, the very wealthy genteel woman. Try to apply the homogeneous principle to that. Oh, let's have a church of previously demon-possessed slave girls. Now, I'm being facetious, but it, I, folks, it's happening, and I, I, I labor over how to be generous about this. God will use, he, he can use all of our, we're weak and faulty. He, he can use all of that, I know that. But there was a third one, an old, grizzled Roman soldier who either got as a, as a promotion, maybe in retirement, or maybe as a demotion, he became the jailer of the cell in which Paul was thrown into. This guy had PTSD. I I think he did. Because when God did a work and the jail cells were open and uh, he saw that they were open and he assumed that everybody escaped, what did he do? He was suicidal. And Paul says, we're here. And the guy, I get chills when I think about it. He said, what, what must I do to be saved? Believe. And he got saved in his household. They believed and they, they were saved. And guess what? They became members of the First Baptist Church of Philippi. Now, if we applied the homogeneous principle like we sometimes do, which is nothing more than a modern-day caste system, again... We would have three different churches meeting with three different emphases. But God doesn't want to do that. He puts slave and free together. He puts Jew and Gentile together. He puts them together to become families, learning and growing, bumping into each other. With different, the only thing that really was their common identity was Jesus Christ crucified. Well, folks... That was enough. Now, in a setting like this, only one church, do you think that there were opportunities for problems to come up? Hmm? Do you? I do. And so that's why the third point is right here. Loving and redemptive confrontation is not just a nicety. It is a necessity. So Paul assumes we're not perfect. 
you got a very wealthy businesswoman. Maybe she would kind of get out of sorts and start throwing her weight around since, after all, she was influential. Maybe that little slave girl would start falling back, sliding back into her former addiction. Maybe the old grizzled soldier would start taking up ways that were not productive in the church or in his family. You hear what I'm saying? So what do you do, Timothy? What do you do, church member? Do you let it slide in the name of love? Love everybody? Or do you lovingly confront something in order to help that person and help the church? Because God wants His church to be pure. Not perfect, but pure. And so here's what He says. Timothy, we're not breaking it down into any other subcategories or micro groups. We're saying here's how to deal with older men and younger men, older women and younger women. The process of working out what God has worked in because we all struggle with sin and weakness and failure. Right? And I may think I'm perfect sometimes. Jan can tell you differently. And so I need someone who will love me enough to come to me, and this is what Timothy is saying, in the right way and not the wrong way. There's a wrong way and there's a right way to do it. To correct maybe what's in me is a blind spot. So hang on. As we help other people work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. Let's look at the next thing. How not to confront for redemptive purposes. By the way, confrontation, church discipline. You've got all those quotes on church discipline. We're gonna, I think we're going to talk next week a little bit about church discipline in the sermon before we actually do it in our church meeting. It doesn't say don't do it, but it says there's a wrong way to confront. It says do not rebuke. Now, hold on. Does it in other places it says, it, it says to rebuke? Doesn't it? Let's look at some of those places. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof or preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke. These words are totally opposite of the word used right here. This word is the only time this word translated rebuke, at least in the ESV, this is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. It's a verb. There is a noun that is similar to it that is used in 1 Timothy 3 about the qualifications for the elder. Are you still with me? This is important. Don't pick someone who is a striker. Don't let a guy who's pugnacious be an elder. Okay? That's the, sa that's the same, a cognate word of, of what we're talking about here. Do not rebuke. The word itself means to strike or beat upon. That's not what these words mean. We're going to see that in just a minute. This is a harsh rebuke, meant to cause pain. You know what word is, it, it comes to my mind when I think of it in society? Cancel. You don't like somebody, you just cancel them. And Paul says, Timothy, when you approach an older man, do not rebuke him like that. When you, uh, you approach an older do not do that. When you approach a peer, a young man, a young woman, think about this, siblings. Do not do this. Do not use censure. Do not be disrespectful in that. And I can tell you this, there are people here today in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who heard a word like this when they were a child 
and they can remember it to this day. And some of you in this room, you see the power of words like this. And Paul says, if you want the church to be a family, you do not use this kind of speech. Let me tell you what else it's like. Let no rotten words, corrupting speech, that's what this is. It stinks. It does not give nourishment because it's rotten. It's corrupting speech. Don't let that kind of speech come out of your mouths. Here's another descriptor in Proverbs. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You ever been on the receiving end of that? Paul says, don't do that to any one of these groups. There is a right way to do it. He says, but encourage. Ah, I love that word. Paraclete, not parakeet, kids. Paraclete, it's the, it's the same word used of the Holy Spirit. One who comes alongside, not afraid to confront because it loves you so much that it's willing to correct. And so you can take the negatives of those previous verses All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke with all patience. Don't do that, but use words that are good for building up, that fit the occasion, so that they will give grace to the hearer. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. And those are the kinds of words that we are to use in the church family toward one another. Now, let me just go through this list. You see those? I'm just going to give a one-word descriptor. We, We don't have time. This is a teaser for next week. We'll, We'll fill it in a little bit, but I was struck by something. Paul really doesn't say anything more than don't do this, but do that. He leaves it up to us to read the Word, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we see a brother or a sister step out of line, slide back into sin, that kind of thing, to approach them not with harshness, but with a loving, corrective kind of word. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So... You see an old guy like me, and I start, now, this is one thing. If I start teaching bad doctrine, later on we're told what to do. Or if I fall way out of line, but if you sense something in me, I'm I'm telling you how to apply this to an older guy. And maybe you feel, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not. But the way to approach me is not to come and point the finger and say, you, and then fill in the blank, but rather to come with, let me give you a word for older men. You see that on your, put, put the word respect out beside of it. And maybe you can't respect as you would a father. Maybe you can't respect a father. Respect the position of father, okay? And so what that would mean, you would come to me and say, I... I may be wrong in this, but I'm sensing this. Could, could we grab a cup of coffee? Let, let me share with you what I'm sensing. Maybe you could explain to me. Isn't that different than the accusation and the condemnation and that kind of thing? That's why Paul says. Now, even if you approach someone like that, what could happen? They might stiff arm you. They might accuse you of accusing them. But in love... You do it anyway. You exhort. How about with younger men? If older men you you come to and the word is respect, write that outside. If you come to a younger brother, what should that look like? Younger men. Humility. Put that word out there. Humility. In other words, hey, I, I, I put on my pants just the same way you do. I'm not superior to you. And you approach it in the same way with a great deal of humility. How do you approach an older woman, Timothy? 
We're going to come to an example of this in just a minute. How do you approach an older woman? How do you approach a mom? With harshness? With accusations? With saying, here's how you failed me? You approach an older woman with gentleness. Okay? And that's very important. How about younger woman? Now, this is the only place where Paul, listen to this, where Paul puts a description in. And I looked at this. I tried to, does this, does this descriptor fit all of these or just the younger women? It could apply to all of these, certainly. But specifically, he says, Timothy, when you approach a younger woman, approach her as you would a sister. And this is the only time he describes a very important character quality. He says, in all purity. In all purity. There, there are stories after stories after stories of men in leadership and men in the church, maybe who started with a well-meaning approach to a younger woman, but did not view her as a sister, as someone to be protected. And because people are people, they fell into sin, and they did not treat that younger woman as a sister, but as a sexual object. That's why it's important that he says, in all purity. That's the only place where Paul gives specifics. So put that down. How do you approach an older man? Don't rebuke with respect. A younger man, don't rebuke, but with humility. An older woman with gentleness, don't rebuke. And a younger woman in all purity. Let me give you one final illustration of this. And then we'll talk about the gospel and how the gospel is demonstrated in the Lord's Supper. Philippians, we've already talked about Paul encouraging the church at Philippi. And here we are again. The church is down the road a few years and all of these people, maybe other jailers have come into the church and Roman soldiers and maybe other people from pagan backgrounds, idolaters and demon worshipers and maybe other wealthy people, but they're all together but there were a couple of ladies who had slipped into carnality with each other. Does that happen in the church? People get crosswise? I'm just glad in this church that I have not heard any arguing. If there has been, just don't tell me. Over the color of the chairs. There have churches, been churches where they erupted in fistfights over the color of the carpet or the color of the chairs. And usually it was the guys who had taken up offense for their women, for their wives, who had gotten crosswise with another wife. It happened in Philippi. And so Paul, look, look at how he applies this as he writes, and by the way, the offense is not named Neither is the person that Paul said, go to these women. Get them into a family relationship again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Certainly you can question, but that word really means a questioning so as to raise a dispute. Do all things without murmuring, grumbling, disputing. I entreat, I use that because that's what happened with Yodia and Syntyche or Syntyche. You can pronounce it either way. I looked it up. Get them to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. And then he does a real compliment who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Help them. Help them. Don't go to them and rebuke them, but come alongside and encourage them. You know what the, the name Yodia means? Sweet fragrance. I would say that at that point her name was anything but sweet fragrance in the church. 
people probably thought, thought of her as, man, her attitude stinks. Sintiki or Sintichi. You know what her name means? Fortunate. And I would imagine that there were people who looked and everybody knew, looked at her and said, how unfortunate that these women are at each other's throats. So Paul called upon whoever it was, maybe the pastor, could have been Epaphroditus, it could have been someone else, or maybe just a church member like you, just a church member, to go to those two ladies and appeal to them, you guys have been co-workers with the Apostle Paul. Look at what you've done. Look at the good that you've done. Don't let this little unnamed skirmish scuttle the work of God. Don't rebuke, but encourage. Put it aside and come together. Why? Because there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, pagan or otherwise. We find our identity in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Here's the identity that we share. We believe that all who have been born to Adam from him on to today are by nature and by action sinners. We also believe that God sent His Son to die in the place of sinners. I talked about the active and passive obedience of Christ, but there's something that must be done. You must repent and believe. And then you're justified. And then you begin the work of sanctification and someday, just like George Gilbert I mentioned a few moments ago, you will enter into the eternal someday to receive your glorified body. That's a picture of the gospel. And that's what we celebrate when we partake of the Lord's Supper together.